The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. From the repression of women in Iran to the rollback of abortion rights in the US, alongside the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan, the continuing fight for rights for First Nations people and justice for victims of sexual assault, there appears to be a global war against women. Women around the world are speaking up and there has been a ferocious backlash. Karen Isles, Mona El-Tahawi, Fatima Bhutto and Chelsea Wadigo spoke at All About Women 2023 with host Sam Moston about women's rights at this moment and what women must do to gain or retain their freedom. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in March 2023. Well, hello everybody here in the concert hall of the Sydney Opera House and everyone who's watching on the live stream. My name is Sam Moston and I'm so privileged to be moderating today's discussion about uh, the war on women. Of course, I'd like to add my acknowledgement of country. We are here on Gadigal land and I'd like to acknowledge elders past and present. I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations panellists we have today and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are in our audience today. This is an extraordinary panel. I'd also like to acknowledge that Jane Caro was the convener and driver of this panel. And I think um, I got the, the call to come and um, moderate, but I think this is really Jane's session. So I'd like to pay respects to the, the work that Jane has done. Now, we are going to cover some uh, sensitive territory. There are moments that we'll cover uh, extreme violence perpetrated against women. We'll hear stories. So um, do take care of yourselves as we have this conversation. So let's get into it. You know already that the repression of women in Iran to the rollback of abortion rights in the United States, the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan, the continuing rights for, uh, rights for First Nations people and justice for victims of sexual assault is in a sense a global war against women. And here in Australia, we also live this and feel this viscerally. It's staggering to me that this is not on the front pages of our papers, but every week in Australia, a woman is murdered by a current or former partner, and 50% of women in their 20s, we now know, will experience some form of sexual violence, 50% of our young women. I'm privileged to chair ANROS, the National Research Organisation on Women's Safety, and at the end of March, we will launch the next cohort of the National Community Attitude Survey. Uh, do look out for it at the end of March. But I just wanted to give you a couple of highlights for what's happening in Australia today. The NCAS found that while 91% of respondents agreed that violence against women is a problem, less than half agreed that violence against women is a problem in their suburb or their town. It's happening somewhere else. It's why we're not outraged and why we don't see on the front pages of our papers the, the stories of the one woman a week who is murdered in this country. And the NCAS also found that up to 35% of respondents, men and women, agreed with the statement that many women exaggerate how unequally women are treated in Australia. So we have 
quite a lot to do. Disturbingly, the portion of those that believe men and women equally commit domestic violence has increased over time in Australia. In 2021, almost 40% of people across the country, men and women, indicated that men and women equally commit domestic violence compared with 25% back in 2009. So a growing misunderstanding about who perpetrates and who, who receives violence in this country. So we have the perfect panel to discuss the war on women globally and here in Australia, and I'm delighted now to introduce them to you. I'd like to start with Chelsea Watergo. Chelsea's to my left here. Chelsea is a Munanjali and South Sea Islander woman born and raised on Yagara country. She first trained as an Aboriginal health worker. She is an Indigenous health humanities scholar, a prolific writer, and a public intellectual. Her debut collection of essays, Another Day in the Colony, go out and buy it, buy it again today, and have Chelsea sign it later on today. That was published in late 2021. And when she's not being referred to as Vern and Elaine's baby, she is also Kihi, Maha, Eliakim, Vernon and George's mum. Please make her very welcome. Karen Isles, at the end of the panel to my left, is an Aboriginal woman with connection back to Gunnanday, the area we now think about between Wiseman's Ferry and St Albans. She's the founder and principal solicitor of Violet Co Legal and Consulting, a social enterprise with the purpose to create radical solutions and just outcomes for women, gender diverse and First Nations people. Now we've had several conversations leading up to today and I, we spoke about Karen's um, history and what she'll talk about today. She was the victim of a series of aggravated child sex assaults as a 14 year old girl. And in talking to Karen about that, it's clear that she lives in a duality. She is not defined by that horrendous event 30 years ago, but it has shaped the course of her life, particularly her professional life. And you'll hear from her today about the campaign that she is now running. And we'll ask her, I'll be asking her a question about the campaign you may have heard about, which is to oversee complaints regarding police conduct and to pay true respect to victims and ensure they are central to investigations. But we will hear from Karen. Please make her very welcome. Fatima Bhutto, again, the third on the, to my left, was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, and grew up between Syria and Pakistan. She is the author of several books, both fiction and non-fiction. Her debut novel, The Shadow of the Crescent Moon, was long listed for the Bailey's Women Prize for Fiction, and the memoir about her father's life and assassination, Songs of Blood and Sword, was published to acclaim. Her most recent books are The Runaways, a novel, and New Kings of the World, a reportage on globalisation and popular culture. Most recently, Fatima said in a piece that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald, it is important to finally understand that women everywhere are under attack. I can't think of a single place where women feel absolutely free and secure and able to express themselves and live freely. Mm. Please welcome Fatima. Mona, Mona El-Tahawi is an extraordinary woman. She's a feminist author, commentator, and a disruptor of the patriarchy. 
I may say, Mona, you always have the best hair colour. It's <laughs> always the very best. Um, she's founder and editor-in-chief editor of the newsletter Feminist Giant. And I just thought I'd share with you something that um, Mona... Mona has been to Australia many times and has appeared on our screens and in a now infamous Q&A episode a couple of years ago. Um, she said this, which I think helped set the, today's discussion. This idea of respectability, this idea of civility, this idea of unity, all of these words, decorum... Who invented these words? These words were invented by white men for the benefit of other white men in systems of institutions that were always designed for white men. And they weren't designed for women like you and me and so many others. They weren't designed for people of colour and gender diverse people. They never imagined us in those spaces. And then we show up and we just ruin it for them. <laughs> and so those who abide by the system actually suffer. And so she doesn't actually, in response to going low, she doesn't go high, she goes after them. So we are set for um, a remarkable conversation. I'm going to kick off with Chelsea. Um, Chelsea, I think it's really important we start here in this country with First Nations, um, a First Nations perspective. How do you, as an Aboriginal woman, think of what the war on women really represents at this time and in this place? Thank you. Look, I think um, I can't think about the war on women without thinking about the foundational war, uh, the never-ending war in this place, um, and the violence of settler colonialism um, that is visited upon Aboriginal men, women and children. Um, what interests me is the way in which Aboriginal women are cast in that war um, and in the course of that violence. And oftentimes we are uh, relegated to voiceless victims of a particular kind of violence, often, um, you know, violence that we apparently inflict on each other, not the violence at the hands of the state, um, which there is this strange silence about in this place in regards to that. Um, and other times we are cast as the, as the subset of the category of woman on the odd chance we are included in that category and through that our unique um, fights are invisibilised um, and erased. And the irony of all of this is that uh, we are not passive subjects. As sovereign Aboriginal women, we are the fiercest warriors in this fight. Yet we were never celebrated as such, commemorated as such. Um, we're cast as almost caricatures in the colony, um, uh, deemed uncaring um, even by the progressive feminist left or the be kind nature, um, deemed incapable of being cared for. And you only have to look to the treatment of our most sovereign Senator Lydia Thorpe in this time and the silence from the left and right in regards to what she is subjected to. Um, and you have to also then look, that, look at that in the context of this current Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and the silence surrounding this right now. And they are linked because this silence uh, forms part of the culture of impunity that's created that sees us subject to so much violence in this place. Thank you. Did you want to take us further into some of the work that you've, you've um, brought to us via your, your writing? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, it's in this place, talking about the war on women, um, the war on, like, white feminists on sovereign Aboriginal women is a thing um, that we need to talk about. And in our work in the fight with Sisters Inside against criminalising coercive control, 
um, the violence that gets visited upon Aboriginal women in the course of women's safety initiatives. Because, of course, white women can count on the police to protect them. Um, Aboriginal women can't, and we see the ways in which Aboriginal women, even when we call for help, are cast as perpetrators. In the Queensland Women's Safety Justice Task Force, in their own terms of reference, the only, the only woman that they listed in that um, terms of reference that was cast as both perpetrator and offender were Aboriginal women. Like, the state designed it as such. Um, and so, in our calls for not further funding the police, authorising the police, um, we were met with um, carceral feminists, white feminists, um, accusing us of not caring for our own women. Um, and you know that they have not had to deal with the violence of police in the calls for help and protection. Um, and so there's the betrayal of the sisterhood in the Settler Colonial Project. Um, and we are cast as, yeah, unkind, as, um, you know, um, not collegial. Um, and what I just, it's, there's a real betrayal of, of um, uh, women in this place. Um, who are more invested in the, the Settler Colonial Project than they are in the sisterhood. Karen, if I can turn to you, and I, I did mention um, the incident that you suffered uh, 30 years ago. It seems that it's imperative that you bring to this uh, topic um, the issue of justice for victims of sexual assault. Can you tell us what you're doing and tell us a bit more about your campaign? Sure. Um, well, I think this week I've turned myself into Murdoch clickbait mm. <laughs> with the articles that have appeared. Um, the, I suppose the camp, I might go into the campaign to a bit, but to build on, um, build out what Chelsea was saying, you know, the, the campaign that myself and many friends, um, in the auditorium here today are running is about police accountability. And it's kind of, a, you know, we, I wrestled with that campaign because, of course, the police for the entire time since colonisation and invasion has always been a system and a group of people who have perpetrated violence on Aboriginal people and, in particular, on Aboriginal women. And so it, it in some ways, feels weird to be running a campaign calling for police to get off their asses and do their job. Because do I believe in the nature of that job? It's a really tricky question, especially as a solicitor. I think our legal systems are weaponised against particular people in our society and Aboriginal women, Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people generally is exactly who that system is weaponised against. And for me, you know, taking the question of, you know, would you bother reporting to police? I mean, for me, I reported... Um, the assaults against me when I was in my early 20s, which is actually, I like to think of myself as a high achiever above the curve. For people who report instances of childhood sexual abuse, it on average takes them 22 years. So um, technically I should only really be disclosing, you know, around about now-ish. Um, so, you know, I went to police in my early 20s um, and, and even then I had scepticism about would the police actually believe? Would they actually care enough to do something about these crimes? And unfortunately, and I won't go into it, you can, you can have a look at the... I'd point you to the Guardian article by Ben Smee in October 2022. 
the police have done absolutely nothing for 19 years. Am I surprised? Not really. Um, Is this campaign about me? No, it's actually about justice for all types of victims of crime in this country. And would I ever turn to police for help again? No. Would I, who, you know, people have reached out to me saying, oh gosh, I hope you're okay after all these horrible things that have happened to you. And it's like, well, it happened with respect. It happened 30 years ago. My family and I have have dealt with that you know, a long time ago, the trauma that I experience and the distress is perpetuated by the system, it's perpetuated by the police. And I think that's a very common story um, for a lot of families and victims that actually the violence is, is one thing, but what the system does and what the police do is something entirely different. And, and you know, I said on telly the other night, you know, that for me has actually been 10 times worse and that's saying a lot, given the scale of crimes that I was a victim of. Um, yeah. Can I ask you, um, when we were chatting um, before the panel about your campaign, you made a really salient point, and you talked about what's happened in Australia, is that these campaigns are now run by, by women by themselves. So we get to know the names of the women who are bringing to us their, their, their experiences and, we're, and on our behalf. Um, trying to elevate the concerns. And you've got, a, you've got a slightly different take on this about what's happened to collective action as opposed to relying on women mm. as individuals to fight these campaigns. Mm. I, think, I think it's really interesting looking at the state of, um, of activism in this country. I mean, if we hark back to, you know, our foremothers and forefathers, you know, we, th- we often think of, you know, the social justice movements and the movements for Aboriginal justice in the early 1900s and then through to the 1970s, you know, and the activism landscape now is vastly different. We now have NGOs, which we didn't necessarily have, um, you know, in those earlier generations. And I think that those NGOs hold space and they, they take the lead and government looks to them for the lead on these issues. But those NGOs in and of themselves are often, you know, very corporatised, very capitalistic, exclude a vast number of, of women and people from them, have very tightly defined strategies, of which I've played my own role <laughs> over the years, sorry, in creating. Um, and, and what they're not doing is responding to what's going on um, in the activist movement. And so you're kind of seeing that the change, particularly in sexual violence and particularly with the deaths um, and murders of Aboriginal women and, and men and, and children, that they are being led by families, they're being led by individual act- activists at immense personal, emotional, financial cost. And the NGOs are not coming in and backing them, with the exception of a couple that... And I like to think of NGO, you know, non-government organisations. I think the vast majority are actually GOs. They're government organisations. They are pretty much solely funded by the government and are scared of taking on these hard issues. I mean, we had the response from media this week of, oh, you know, this taking on police is, ooh, a bit too hot to handle. Mm. And, um, and it's... It's, I think, the responsibility of those in that not-for-profit, non-government sector is to actually realise the space they take up and actually go to where the struggle is. Yeah. I'm sure we'll come back to this in the conversation. 
Fatima, let's widen our lens uh, beyond Australia now and go to the global picture. Why don't you start with Afghanistan, Iran and Pakistan? And I'm sure there's a lot more to that, but let's, let's start there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I just want to say, in, just to comment on what Karen and, and Chelsea were saying, I think this fear of the police and of the state is such a universal experience. Uh, I'm just thinking of Pakistan, where if a woman has been raped, she needs police permission in a hospital to get a rape test. A hospital can't do without police permission, and guess what the police usually do. Um, but to go to the small question of... Afghanistan, Iran, and Pakistan. <laughs> um, do you know, I think, Sam, I think actually, and it's taken me a while to get to this point, but I really do think that the era of provincial feminism is really over. And it's over because we, we just, as women, but also as like people, don't have time anymore to waste provincially. And, and I came to this really for two reasons. The, the first is that We've shown, and here I mean as women, but again, also as people, um, we're really bad at showing solidarity. We don't actually show solidarity. We show selective solidarity. And we pretend that the solidarity we do show is couched in these, you know, wonderful things like women's rights and oppression. And, but we're pretty transparent about picking which women have the right <laughs> to speak against oppression and which women really shouldn't. And it's a little inconvenient and it's better if they don't talk to anyone. So, you know, while I think it's great that people are talking about Iran, I'm, it, it does confuse me as to why no one is talking about, you know, the one million women and girls who are living under siege in Gaza who live in the world's largest. We know this also, it didn't happen last week, you know, it's 75 years of it and they live in the largest open air prison in the world. And, you know, Noam Chomsky said a few days ago that he doesn't call Israel an apartheid state because what it practices is so much worse than apartheid. So I, I'd never, I've come to a lot of these kind of conferences and I, I really haven't heard anyone talk about those women. So. I think we just, we're bad at it. So we should stop doing it. And the second reason, um, oh, well, sorry, the caveat to the last one is that if you're going to show solidarity, then show it to all women anywhere, everywhere who are fighting. Other, you know, don't pick and choose. You know, you don't get to pick which movements you support, I don't think. But the second reason is that I think we're at a moment of, of global crisis, and, and I mean climate change, Climate change is going to come for everyone. It's going to come for the West, for the East, for the educated, for the uneducated. It's going to come for the developed world and the undeveloped world. But it will be women in the global South who, pay the, who, who will pay the biggest price, at least at first. And we already know that climate change, though it's very democratic in this way, we know that it affects women worse 80% of people who are displaced by climate change today are already women. Women are not only trying to survive things like extreme weather events, but they have the least resources, the least money. Um, they live in fear of the state, of the police, of, of, of power in that sense. They have maternal health crises. And, and here's the larger point is that you know, we can talk about schools and education and all that as much as we want, but if everything is underwater, if everything is flooded, 
or if everything is on fire, or if there is drought, it won't matter. The school will be underwater. You know, people have been trying to to impress upon us for so long that we're running dangerously out of time to fight climate change. And and you know, I think I think it's now or never. So if we're going to think of feminism, we have to think of feminism as it's intended, as a global movement. And and there's no greater feminist cause in my mind today than than saving the planet and and each other. But I just I want to end my little thought or rant by 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 something Mike Davis said. And, you know, Mike Davis died last year and, and he was a wonderful writer. He wrote a lot about pandemics, warning us, again, no one listened, about activism. He, just a t- tremendous writer and thinker. And and he said, what, what do you do when you are faced with a gray concrete prison wall? How do you bring a concrete wall down? And Mike Davis said, well, you need a hammer and you are the hammer. And I think that's how we have to think of climate. We are the hammer. If we're going to wait for governments sponsored by Pepsi and Saudi Aramco to fix the planet for us, we'll be dead before that happens. Thank you. And of course, um, living in Australia... We don't just observe those climate change impacts around the world. We're experiencing them. And there'll be, there'll be women in the audience and women watching, perhaps, um, or unable to watch and join us because they're dealing with the, the floods right across Australia and the, 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 um, the need to build back. Absolutely. But often without any recognition about the role that women are playing in that um, well, and the extent of that to our country. We, you had f- disastrous floods last year in Australia. Pakistan was, a third of Pakistan was underwater. Afghanistan had floods. Nigeria had floods. Puerto Rico had floods. This is the future and we're going to survive it together. And I mean, I was saying to Mona backstage, the last time we met at another feminist thing, <laughs> also here in Australia, um, I, I was telling Mona that I was angry. Like I remember feeling angry in those days. And I'm not really angry anymore. I'm just really desperate and I feel sad. Yes, I think. On that note, Mona. (laughs) Well, we're going to go to Mona. We're going to go to Mona now. So, Mona, um, we will start with the US because, like many other parts of the world, Australia looked on in absolute horror at the rollback of abortion rights in the United States. Um, You're coming to us today from New York, um, where you spend a lot of your time, and so you've got some pertinent on-the-ground observations about what's happening in the US context. But I think that is just the springboard for a broader set of... um, provocations you'd like to leave us with today. So over to you. Thank you, Sam. Um, Hello, everyone. I I have to start with my usual because it's pertinent to what I'm about to say. So my name is Mona Altahawi. My pronouns, which are very important for what I'm about to say, are she, her, hers, and I begin everything with my declaration of faith, fuck the patriarchy. (laughs) So I do come to you from from New York City, and, and and it's important to highlight that because... There are so many people in New York City, especially white liberal women, who are like, oh, we're going to be fine. You know, we're in New York, as if you know, New York is some kind of island, you know, that is independent and not affected by what's happening in the, U- in the United States. But we're not going to be OK. And no one is going to be OK. And it's not just because we've got a bunch of white Christian, white supremacist Christian zealots 
who are determined to control our bodies, but it's because they are setting the agenda for the rest of the world. What is happening in the United States right now is the rise of fascism that has been on the rise in other smaller, less significant countries, if you like, like Israel, like Hungary, like Poland. But now we're, we're talking about the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world, which is embracing fascism head on. And this is happening at the, and this is where abortion and trans rights and the importance of things like pronouns and queer rights come into play because it's not just about these white supremacist Christian zealots determined to control, to treat us like walking incubators. It's about a bodily autonomy that they recognize that belongs only to them. And that war on women is not just being carried out by white supremacist Christian zealot men, but is being joined by white women. And, we, and, and, and thank you, Chelsea, for, for mentioning again and again, you know, the lack of sisterhood. Because when I look at the world, when I expand the lens from the United States to the rest of the world, I'm thinking of Jacinda Ardern, who resigned a few weeks ago. I'm thinking of Nicola Sturgeon, who has said that she is going to resign. And we're seeing the rollback of these so-called progressive women, and we're seeing the rise of fascist white women like Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk in the United States, like Georgia Maloney in Italy, who is Italy's first woman prime minister, who also happens to be the head of the Brothers of Italy party, <laughs> who is a fascist fuck. And, <laughs> and this is what concerns me, because everything, abortion, trans rights, our position on the police, all of that has to be seen within uh, climate change too, has to be seen within the context of fascism. And the fascism isn't just in the United States, as I said, it's in China, it's in India, it's in Saudi Arabia, it's in Israel. It, it will come for you here. You might have gotten rid of ScoMo, but where do you think his voters went? Do you think the people who voted for Scott Morrison and the people who voted for Donald Trump have disappeared? I wish they had, but they haven't. <laughs> So um, I feel that th this, this is what is really making me enraged now. I, I mean, I, I'm, I remain forever enraged, Fatima. So just hand, hand your rage over to me. <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, since my last visit to Australia, like I, I actually need to murder some rapists just so I can outdo what I did last time. So if you know any rapists, please bring them backstage and I'll take care of them. But... But, but no, seriously, I mean, the, the, I, I'm serious about that too. But fascism, <laughs> fascism is a real concern. And I think the reason that, um, especially in the context of a country like the United States, and, and this directly ties into abortion now, when we've known for the past 50 years that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned because these white supremacist Christian zealots have been working for 50 years to get it overturned. So to hear white liberal women now say, oh my God, oh my God, how could this happen? Like, where the fuck have you been? <laughs> and, and not just that, too, because if they had been paying attention to black scholars, to indigenous women, to people of color in the United States who have rarely, if ever, enjoyed bodily autonomy, they would understand why they now are not going to enjoy bodily autonomy, which is where the trans issue comes in. It is not a trans debate. There is no debating people's humanity. There is no debate about trans issues. 
So to see this happening in the United States, you also have to understand that it is happening because the people who were driving it were white and Christian. And white and Christian in settler colonial countries is, are considered the default and the norm. And the rest of us are pathologized and the rest of us are overanalyzed. If the United States had analyzed and pathologized these white Christian zealots in the way that they had my people, we might not be where we are right now. So watch out for fascism. I come to you with a warning from the future because it is coming to get you too. So we're going to have a bit of a conversation and now. I'm, I'm going to come to Chelsea. It's already yeah. here. In the state of Queensland, we have a Labour government, Anastasia Palaszczuk who has continuing to give more powers to the police to incarcerate Aboriginal women and children. Like, it's here right now, and on the left, on the left. Um, and if you look at what's happening in Queensland, they're overlooking Human Rights Act in order to criminalise breach of bail for Aboriginal, for, for children. But it's very clear, the un Queensland Police Union, um, the Queensland Police Service and the Palaszczuk government are all working together to incarcerate blackfellas, and they've been very clear in their language of who this is targeted at. Um, so I just feel like we can look overseas, but you have to look what's happening right here, right now in this country, from the left, from yeah. the left. Yeah. Oh, and if I can add to that, to what Chelsea and, and Mona have said, it was um, Hillary Clinton was asked when Georgia Maloney, the first fascist head of state in Italy since Benito Mussolini, when Maloney was voted in, Hillary Clinton was asked what she thought, and she said, any time a woman is voted into power, that is a step forward. Oh. And, I, and I, don't, I don't think you can say Hillary Clinton didn't know that Maloney's a fascist. I mean, I think we all know Maloney's of a fascist, course. no? It's, um, it's yeah. well, it's I'm going scary. to open up in a second. I just need to let the, my, the great people behind the scenes let them know that my slider has given me a code I've got to enter, so I need someone to come and grab this from me and put the code in because I don't have it. Um, but I had noticed, thank you, because it's immediate. This is extraordinary. Um, that the, Some of the slider questions are already, thank you, are turning to uh, the role of men, both um, yeah. as allies, but also what to do about the men problem. That's, that's some of the, the highest rating questions. But we've gone, we've, the panel has gone actually to a, in a much more substantive direction around the problem with women and women um, white women, particularly. Um, I was going to go to you, Chelsea, because you mentioned before we came on the work of Amy Maguire and the work that you've done and the reframing and the words that are used, that we talk about the silencing of the disappearance of First Nations women, but it's not a silence. It's, I think you've, you and Amy have discussed this very differently. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, what's interesting, there's a missing inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women right now, but it's actually missing from public discourse, like a Senate inquiry. Um, you can't find out where the hearings are at. It's just no-one's reporting on it. Um, and, um, I, you know, working with Amy McGuire, um, an amazing uh, black journalist, um, who argues that Aboriginal women don't go missing. They are forcibly disappeared in this place. And what's, what's interesting here, um, those that are deemed missing... What's missing in the cases is the perpetrator, which is typically a white male. And it's often not just the intimate partner stuff, it's the stranger, um, the, the encounter with the white male perpetrator. Um, and there are any number of criminal inquiries going on that have gone on in this last year. Miss Monique Club in Queensland, Miss Bernard that's still um, in Cairns. Um, and when you look at these, these inquiries and the, the, the failure of police to investigate, the common thread is, is the perpetrator is a white male. 
Um, but we're happy to, to talk about, um, you know, Aboriginal domestic violence as though it's something that Aboriginal men do to Aboriginal women and that's it. Um, and so there's a, the, the silencing around the violence that blackfellas are subjected to this, this in, the, in this place, whether it's the stranger on the street or the hands of the state. Um, and everyone's complicit in that silence. And, and when you draw attention to it, you're cast then as, um, oh, you don't care about, um, you know, the other pressing needs that our communities experience. Um, and there's always this distraction away from um, the, the various forms of violence that we are subjected to that is not of our own making. Um, mm. And that, that serves a political function to continue to cast us as somehow undeserving of protection, undeserving of care, undeserving of life in the land that we became human in. That's the fight. The, the inquiry at the moment into... Um, I even just think the word missing is completely buying into racist stereotypes about... It's very Terry Nullius. Totally. When you think about it. Totally. Um, but anyway, the inquiry into murdered Aboriginal women, children, and I'd also say men... Um, at the moment, like, we've written a submission. I don't even know, like, when are the hearings? Why is this not getting as much airplay as the Royal Commission's into child sexual abuse in institutions? That most, you know, so many of those, of those victims were men, actually, Christian men. Whereas this inquiry is completely being silenced in our community. And... I mean, for me as well, you know, I think about um, the inquiry recently in, in Chelsea's home state in Queensland into the conduct of police in relation to domestic and family violence matters, not sexual assault, which is my kit and caboodle, but um, domestic and family violence. And there the, the commission of inquiry, given the framing, it's, it's quite fantastic, actually, that the, the judge came out and said there is systemic Racism and sexism and misogyny in the Queensland police force, unequivocal. And I think that if there was an inquiry like that in any other state or territory in Australia, the findings should be exactly the same. And the reason I say that is, and I'm going to be shameless and give the website a plug, the campaign website is called makepoliceinvestigate.org. We've got a list of case studies that you know, it could go on for thousands and thousands, but it has a list of case studies of not just sexual assault victims that haven't, you know, deserved the attention that should be given to them, but also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, LGBTQI members of our community that have been murdered at the hands of police in, in this state, and also um, victims of domestic violence. Um, so you can, you can take a read of that and hopefully, you know, join together to actually support and amplify the voice of these families and victims that are having to, on their own, campaign because of that lack of, of solidarity because they're not, and you know, in academia there's a concept of the deserving victim. They're not the deserving victim. Yep. And that inquiry came about because of the campaigning around the, the conversation around criminalising coercive control and it was the Queensland Government's attempt to give, a, a, to, to pretend to care that there are, you know, um, Indigenous women experience violence when they call police for help. And so it was kind of, it was, it was interesting but it was just to sort of, because I was going ahead to cr criminalise coercive control anyway, but they gave us this inquiry um, and we, we attended to the inquiry and, and gave an expert report as well as some su submissions. 
Um, what you saw was a lot of coverage of that inquiry. It was a Queensland government inquiry. Lots of coverage. And the reason was because white female officers as witnesses were believed. But in this Senate inquiry, you know, a national inquiry, where the witnesses, the victims are Aboriginal women, there's a connection here. And, you know, when a white woman calls out racism and misogyny, they are more believed than what we are. Um, it's, it's, it's just to me is, it shouldn't be surprising, yet it still is because the level of violence that black women continue to report, even for that report to police, still report to the public square, only to be disregarded in the same way the cops are disregarding women when they seek help. Yep. And so it's shame on everybody, like all of you, <laughs> for your silence. Mm. Mona and Fatima, that question of police and then the states and institutions, we've seen that in the UK with those horrific uh, revelations of what was happening in the British police force and um, perpetrators within the, within the force itself that are now only just being recognised after decades and decades of calls for action. Is this part of what you also see, policing, military? I mean, the, we haven't even gone to uh, conflict zones of the kind like the Ukraine and the use of women in war. Um, as, as, and the raping of women and children in war as a, as a tool of war. I mean, this, this story just gets bigger and bigger. Um, I'm interested in, in yours and Mona's views. Yeah, well, you know, the, the famous case in England was the case of Sarah Everard, who was a, a white woman um, who was stopped by a police officer out of uniform, I think it yes. was, and um, was raped and, and killed. And, you know, that's, again, it's Me Too in a way broke this facade that women only struggled, struggled in other parts of the world. Because not that long ago, I mean, I, I, people like me would get invited to things like this and be told, you know, how are things so bad where you're from? Tell us, we don't know anything about it, you know. <laughs> it must be so hard being a Muslim woman or, you know, a woman from Asia, as though everything else was fine in the world. And, you know, Me Too was the first chip in that armor. But, you know, there's so much else happening everywhere around the world. And, and, and just to an earlier point that Mona made about fascism, I think it's absolutely true in settler colonial countries that the, the white Christian or white male is the default. But, you know, to look at a place like India is, is a sort of education in um, fascism in all its <laughs> wondrous forms. You know, the BJP um, has plenty of support from women. Narendra Modi, you know... 15 years ago, couldn't get a visa to a place like Australia mm. because of the massacre um, that took place in his home state under his watch. And not only were people killed in Gujarat in 2002 at scale, but women were raped. Women were raped as a, as a practice, as a strategy in front of their families. And, you know, today we pretend that, what, it didn't happen? You know, now we talk about development. In fact, your own prime minister, I'm sorry to say, looked a bit silly in Gujarat mm. um, at a cricket stadium in a place that has a really horrific history, not just against Muslims and against minorities, but against women. Um, he was in a cricket stadium called the Narendra Modi Cricket Stadium. Uh, he was shaking hands with Narendra Modi himself, who was receiving pictures of Narendra Modi. I mean, it was really... Embarrassing, And not a question was asked in the Australian media. I mean, no one asked anyone on that tour, how do you feel about coming here, a place where so much violence was done? Any comment? And no, because India's a trading partner. You know, India's a buffer against China. So no one's going to talk about women's rights. Mona. 
Well, you know, you said someone was asking about men. Yes, you know, I've got a couple. I, do you want me to ask, tell you what the questions are? Or would you like to go there first? Uh, I mean, I, I, I often get asked about, yes. you know, where are the men in these discussions? Because you just talk about white women all the time. So I really want to, I want to get into that. <laughs> I think um, one of, first, let's lay this one elephant, which came up in the first panel that I moderated, which, which was called, Who is Feminism For? And, you know, the majority of the audience then, as now, is white women, you know? And, and, Feminism is not just for white women, obviously, but by the very nature of these events and the privilege that is required to attend these events, um, the majority of the audience is white women. And I know it makes white women very uncomfortable for us to hold their feet to the fire because there is this understanding that we're all standing on a level playing field when it comes to feminism, and we're not. Because as so many of us here on the panel have said, we're not. So when we hold white women's feet to the fire, it's not that we're in denial of the fuckery of men. I mean, the subtitle of my newsletter is, you know, a femini the feminist fight against global patriarchal fuckery. I'm very <laughs> aware of what cishet men especially do, you know. But I'm very aware that, you know, depending on where you stand on that feminist spectrum, you're going to be affected by it very differently. And the case of someone like Sarah Everard and all the cases about the police violence that Chelsea and Karen have brought up is a reminder, you know, there was very little uproar or outrage against the police in the UK until Sarah Everard was murdered. Mm. Because the same women who were upset were the same women who were wearing pink pussy hats to the women's march and posing with the police. Mm. And who, is the, who are the police friends to? Who are the police designed to protect? You know, they protect power and they protect property. And in the white supremacist patriarchal view of things, white, men are pro uh, white women are property. So the police are going to protect white women as part of white supremacist patriarchy's property. And those are difficult truths and truths that... White liberal feminism tries to lessen the, you know, the, the, the sharp edges. The Hillary Clinton saying, it's great to have any woman in power. No, it's not great to have any woman in power because I will not cheer for a foot soldier of the patriarchy. So yes, of course, fuck misogyny and fuck sexism and fuck the patriarchy, which I say everywhere I go. But let's look at who is affected more by it. And the role, I, I think, you know, since I moved to the U.S. 23 years ago and it became increasingly apparent to me that what men, what white men were doing were telling white American women, have you seen how bad it is in Saudi Arabia? To your point, Fatma. <laughs> Be grateful you live in the U.S. and not Saudi Arabia. And so, so successful has white supremacist patriarchy in the United States been at pointing to Saudi Arabia and Iran and Afghanistan and all these other countries where it's miserable for women that white women in the U.S. didn't pay enough attention to the, what white supremacy was doing at home. And now the women that they were told to feel sorry for in Iran are rising up in a feminist revolution against zealotry, and you've got the same women in the United States who are not paying attention to their own zealotry going, yay, down with the <laughs> zealotry over there. And I'm like, what about over here? Because we've got zealots over here. So it's because of this disconnect that we hold the feet of white women to the fire because you have to pay attention to what, and, and that's the thing, the, the, my white women friends saying, oh my God, what's my daughter going to do when she goes to university and she can't access an abortion? I'm like, do you know what it's been like to black, for black and indigenous women forever? So you need to pay attention earlier than when it starts to affect you. And we will continue to hold your feet to the fire so that you understand that. Karen. Um, 
I'd also extend and, and build on that to also talk about class because I think in Australia um, in particular we don't talk about class very much at all and we like to pretend that it's this you know, equal playing field and everyone's got a fair go, but actually class is, you know, is gendered, is is disproportionately um, impacting on different people, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people differently. And even though when we have women of colour who are, f- are feminists but un- are of a different class it plays in dramatically and I kind of see that in corporate feminism quite a lot of women um, and and not as many women as there should be, absolutely, we can talk about numbers, but, you know, women of of diversity as well but being of a very different class and I don't consider my sisters either. So I think we've also got to talk about class in this discussion. I'd like to add something to what you were saying about Karen. You know, I, I get very frustrated by the kind of feminist analysis of why aren't there more women CEOs? My ambition is not to become a CEO. Do you know what I mean? My ambition is not to have a corner office and become a billionaire or a millionaire or whatever the fuck else I'm supposed to aspire to. My, my ambition is, is to be free, is liberation, you know? And when we look at liberation, when we look at the kind of things that we're supposed to aspire to, ambition and all that kind of stuff, it, it, we end up being funneled into this kind of like the individual exceptional women who are supposed, we are supposed to celebrate. And then we say, yay, see, feminism is working. But for me, feminism isn't, isn't about getting a few exceptional women in places we've been told we're not allowed to go. And, and, and yay, look, we've jumped over the obstacles. My, my feminism is to destroy the obstacles that hold all women, not just, you know, so we can get a Hillary Clinton or a head of, Coca-Cola, do you know what I mean? So class is absolutely central to that because, because what is ambition for, say, a migrant worker who goes to the Gulf and is bringing up someone else's family, leaving her family behind, and then she's murdered or raped, you know, while she's a domestic worker in Lebanon or Saudi Arabia, you know? So class as a, a, a central element of feminism is, is absolutely there. And I think that gatherings like this often forget it because, look, I mean, we're all privileged to be on this. I mean, I, I can't speak for, for all of you, but I, I know I'm privileged to, to live in New York City and be flown over here and speak in front of an audience and say, fuck this and fuck that and survive it, you know? It's a great deal of privilege. So, yes, thank yeah. you for bringing up class. And it- and it's a, just such a, a big step in this place, and we're doing that conversation around coercive control to move femi- so-called feminists from ambition to abolition. Um, and I, I just it amazes me that um, people cannot see it as, a, as an important intellectual project, a political project, and to, to even try and get people speaking about abolition, imagining abolition. What is it like to not reinforce the existing oppressive power structures and imagine a different way of being? One that we've known in this place as blackfellas before the ships came here. Um, and so it's been... Um, what struck me about feminists in this place and this time that we've had to go up against um, is um, that they see abolition as, as this kind of... Uh, or those that argue for abolition as violent, as aggressive... And abolition is a project of love, of care, um, of protection um, that offers us far more than this current arrangement of appealing to police to investigate us properly or to do their job uh, for us. And, um, you know, 
it'd be nice one day that we could actually have some more serious conversations about um, abolition feminism and, and what that means in this place. Um, and, you know, to think about um, people don't know, there are women who just don't know the violence of this place um, and don't believe the accounts of those who speak of it. Um, and I, I just, I, I, I can't imagine what it is not to think about those that are most brutalised um, and, and not to centre a movement around those who are, who are afforded the least amount of care and protection and not have that drive the movement. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the Kumbahi River Collective, the black socialist queer feminists yeah. and in the 1970s who, against, uh, who were frustrated with the racism of white feminism and the misogyny of black liberation movements. And, you know, they would often say, Barbara Smith and others who, who put together um, the statement would, would always say that when black women are free, everyone else will be free because black women are at the intersection of all of that. Yeah. And Angela Davis and Ruth Gilmore Wilson and Mariam Kaba and so many other black feminist scholars who have been proponents of abolition would always talk about love and community mm -hmm. and how you can't achieve any of this without love and community because, because the, the violence of it, because, you know, it, it took me a while to learn about abolition, yeah. you know? I'm Be still on my journey. Like, right? You know, exactly. Like and so I'm so grateful for yeah. those scholars and for you and others who speak about it. And at, at the heart of it is a kind of care that during the pandemic became really, really apparent because yeah. I think what the pandemic ended up showing us was that, you know, when lockdown first began and people were like, oh my God, I can't go out. I can't do this. And, and it was like so many people who were forced um, into being refugees, into migrants, uh, the essential workers, quote unquote, who are the most disposable, even though we called them essential workers who didn't have the privilege of working from home. Suddenly we, people began to realize what it was like to be under curfew, what it was like to not be able to go out and buy or order something from Amazon and have it come, you know, a day later. Mm -hmm. So I think this love and community that you talk about that for so many people was ab were absent during the pandemic have become, or during lockdown, because we're still under the pandemic, have become especially vital as we kind of emerge scathed with all of the, of the pain of, of the pandemic mm -hmm. and fighting against the fascism of freedom, you know, quote unquote, mm -hmm. of the Trump people and their ilk. Um, one of the things that I'd like to use the kind of the power of the chair just to ask a couple of questions about, if you don't mind, it goes to this issue of care and care and love and community. And I just I wanted to ask you all about the economic story. So we, we're, we're thinking very much about a, a certain forms of violence in this conversation. But in this country, about 85% of all care, whether it's unpaid, underpaid, underrespected, is conducted by women. This country has some of the most gender segmented and gender segregated labour force numbers of the world. Um, particularly in the, order, in the world that we compare ourselves to, the OECD, the World Economic Forum. We have some of the highest education rates of women in this country across, from across the world. Um, we have migration programs that bring skills but then don't, um, don't utilise the skills of the women partners of the people we bring to this country. Um, and we expect to run an economy going into in semi-recessionary moments on, without changing the system about who does the caring and who gets the money. And I just wondered if you had any reflections, you know, in this country where, where a number of us are asking government to actually invest in those that need it most, single mothers, those that have been on, um, on support payments who are treated, I think, very much like welfare recipients and not like, like women who are holding up our community and other carers. And we saw that, as you, as you said, Mona, through, through COVID. We acknowledged it. We clapped it. We said how wonderful it was that women took the strain on all forms of care through to education and, and the like. And yet I don't hear a single economic journalist asking... Um, our, our 
our political leaders at, at any level about how we can reorient a budget and spend money on those that are doing the caring. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that from the, your perspectives, um, because we're going through a budget and we have these debates that go on and on and almost assume that women will continue to care out of the goodness of their hearts, but can be, strapped, can be absolutely trapped in poverty before we even start talking about the amount of violence that sends them into poverty often in the first case. I did, just an open question as yeah. I wait for the slider to come back. Well, there, I mean, I can give you an example of where this matters um, very much politically. In, in Pakistan, you have plenty of women working in the informal labor force, um, whether that means they're working in someone's home or in a nail salon or whatever else, which means, of course, that they're paid under the table, they don't have bank accounts. But where it really matters is that in Pakistan, to vote is not a right. It's, it's, um, it's a privilege because you can only vote in Pakistan with a Shanakhti card, which is like a, a national identity card, but they don't just mail it to you when you're 18, like you don't just go pick it up. You've got to go into government offices, be photographed, answer forms, be fingerprinted, and then you have to pay for it. Mm. So it's not free. And so what happens automatically is that the people who are left out of that are the poor um, and are women. Mm. And... Uh, you know, it doesn't seem accidental <laughs> that the system was constructed this way. And instead of fixing the system, you know, politician or government after government will come up with new ridiculous things that they've added to the process of Shanakti cards. Like at some point, someone had the great idea that you didn't have to show your face uh, for your Shanakti card picture. Um, which, by the way, makes it really easy to rig <laughs> when you turn up 45 times at the same booth to, to vote. Um, but what's the point of that? You know, it doesn't really, doesn't really change the fact that women can't get a Shanakti card. And so they can't vote. They can't have bank accounts. Uh, they can't buy a SIM card for their phone. And so I think the question of um, class, of mm. poverty, is always a political question. Mm. It's never just a poverty question. Um, I, I would like to add to the definition of violence, um, Impover impoverishment. Mm. I mean, I, I've learned from my black friends in the United States to say um, under-resourced and impoverished so mm. that we can see where, the, where it's coming from. Because, you know, I, for the longest time I would say poor, right? But that, like, where does that come from mm. to say someone is poor, right? They didn't just, be, you know, it's as if this thing descended. But when you say under-resourced mm. and impoverished and others, where you show where the actual violence comes from, and that is the systems at play, and that is the state, then you show clearly where the violence is coming from because that is violence. Poverty is violence. And, and we have to recognize that. And, I, and it, it plays in directly into things like intimate partner violence and domestic violence because of you know, all the things that a woman has to take into account before she can leave, if she can leave. And it, it was obviously you know, at the heart of so much of the suffering that happened during lockdown because of, again, you know, who was under-resourced and, and who had the ability um, to do anything and without mutual aid and community and all those other you know, great anarchist principles. So I think it's important to, um, that in our definition of violence that we have that violence mm -hmm. where people are deliberately kept under-resourced and impoverished as a, as a way to keep them down. And this is where reproductive justice becomes an issue, not just reproductive rights. Because, and, and I know because I heard from my Aboriginal friends on the panel earlier that, yes, abortion is an important right to have, but it's also an important right, as Dr. Loretta Ross and other black feminists who coined the phrase reproductive justice um, have told us, it's also important to be able to choose to have children when you want them to lead dignified lives 
to feed those children, to send them to school, and to know that they're going to come home from school and not be murdered by someone who's supposed to, to protect them. Sorry, Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle some of the conversations about, um, you know, unpaid care and the burden of care because, um, you know, the blackfellas, like, the importance of family and the importance of the social value of caring. Like, it's the most important role that we could have. And I think about, we're talking about, yeah, who, who gets to um, be carers and and, seen, and not stigmatised. And I think about, I have my first child, first of five at 22, and they're all quite young together and just and I live in a you know a poor neighborhood um and the reading of my body and my supposed um lack of control over my reproductive choices and the way in which you know if I was shopping during the middle of the day with five little ones and people counting and staring and being uh, offended by my presence of how dare I Mm. um breed um I remember going to see a GP and after I was GP when I was sick and he asked me how many children I had and he said stop polluting the earth and so, you know, there is this, um, we can talk about single mothers in care and all that kind yes. of stuff. But yep. The reality is there are people who are deemed undeserving of being carers. And that it's, it's not in itself just important life role to bring in life and raise children. Mm. And that alone sh- should be still celebrated and valued um, as though somehow choosing to be a, a parent is a problem mm. um, yeah, no, because I- you haven't pursued a particular career. Um, and so I struggle sometimes in the context of, you know, um, thinking about class and care because there is in a Western construct mm. um, that sort of monetization around care and not understanding what it is to be human is to care. Yes. And, and it, yeah. And, and, at the, and you're quite right. It, it does need a complete reorientation. And um, at the most recent Early Years Summit, I was really struck by the number of um, leading women uh, from First Nations communities who pointed out, if we need to talk about the early years, we've got 60,000 years of parenting and kinship that, um, expertise that we should be drawing on and not have these things happen that, that you've shared with us. Um, that's available to us. We choose not to. And the thing is, I mean, we've got so many, you know, we've got increasing rates of Indigenous children in care. It's connected to poverty. So why aren't we supporting, better supporting families yes. to keep children in care as yep. opposed to punishing families for for being poor, and the, the kids that are getting incarcerated is because of poverty, um, the factors that make them unable to be eligible for bail. That's and right. so it's, yeah, it's all yeah. connected. So we, we did have 75 minutes for this panel, thinking that would be long enough, but I think we could have had three or four hours. So we're, we're now down to the last um, 12 or 13 minutes. So I do want to turn to the, the Slido questions, um, if, if you don't mind, as a panel. The, 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 I'll try to group a few together, because this issue of men is, is rising as to how men as allies yeah, and men. the role of white men and all men. But there's a particular one I thought was a nice way to think about the future. Um, I'm a mother, this is an anonymous question, I'm a mother to an 18-month-old boy. How can I raise him to be an ally for all women and not just an ally to the women in his life? Anyone like to have... Mm. Well, I think... um... (laughs) (laughs) As a stepmum to the fabulous Gus in the front row, who is 14, um, I think the, you know, it's... I don't know, like, is it any of our role to tell another woman how to, how to raise <laughs> their kid? I don't know, but surrounding them with feminism and thought that pushes boundaries is um, something that my husband and I try to do a lot with our, with our kids. I don't know how well it's paying off, but <laughs> pretty well. He's here. <laughs> 
There's a similar question here about the impact that um, the vile nature of, um, of men's movements, men's rights movements on TikTok and, and the extent to which boys during COVID were, I guess, just um, were, um, this was thrown at them in a way there was no mediating of it and they were in their rooms. You must see this, Mona, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, the around the world. Of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Jordan Petersons, the Tates, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, what, what advice do you give an audience and people watching about the, the pushback on that the, the, and, and what that will take? Well, no, I'm child-free by choice. So I, and I fully you know, hear and respect everything that Chelsea has said, but I've chosen not to have children. Yeah. But um, when it comes to, to that, you know, the, the, the vile, toxic masculinity of men's, so, so-called men's rights movements and how we can raise boys to be um, allies to, to everyone, I think it's really important to go back to what Bell Hooks said, which is that feminism is for everyone. And, and it's for everyone uh, as a reminder that it benefits, it liberates boys and cis, mm-hmm. cis-het men, boys and men, from that toxicity. It liberates them from having to be, um, you know, to, to hide their emotions. It liberates them to be soft. You know, we, we hear a lot on social media these days, you know, and it's wonderful to hear, you know, it's time for me to be soft. It's time for me to rest. It's time to me, it's time for me to, you know, to get off this whole kind of like hustling and just can, always working all the time. And, you know, men deserve that too. And I think that men should understand that and we need to raise boys with this understanding that they too have a right to be free mm. of the ways that patriarchy has oppressed them. And patriarchy, the thing about patriarchy is that it benefits very few. It is advertised, it's false advertising, it's, it's alternative facts, it's false news, all of that stuff. Patriarchy is, is advertised as something that privileges all men, and it's not true. Patriarchy privileges a very specific subset of men, mm. and that would be the whole laundry list now. Able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, conservative, wealthy, some like property-owning men. But, you know, this is why I say I, I don't want to be equal to men. I want to be free. I want something much bigger than equality with men. I want to be free of patriarchy. And this is how we should be raising boys too, to be free of patriarchy. Because if you look at it, the majority of men and boys are not free. Black men are not free. Impoverished men are not free. You know? Let's raise our boys with the, the goal of liberation for everyone. Yeah, like I have uh, four boys and one non-binary child. And um, for us, uh, uh, and I know know kids are exposed to lots of stuff on social media and that kind of thing. And um, I think in our home, it's just been the importance of the kitchen table and those conversations where you can like deconstruct shit and give kids the tools to be able to think critically about the world that they occupy, observe and, and witness. And, you know, my kids like sometimes laugh about, oh, do we have to deconstruct this today? Uh, but yes, we do. Uh, yes, we do. Um, and so I think we must never underestimate our own power as parents to be able to help our children, um, whoever they are, whoever they wish to be in this world, how to think critically about the world. Um, and I th- that's their most important job as a parent, to be able to armour up them up with those skills, yes. um, you know, the, the weapons and the armour that they need to, to go and fight this war that we're all in.
There are so many questions. So you've been magnificent in your, um, in your engagement. Many of them are circled around many of the things that you've already all covered in your, your remarks and your conversation. Um, there is a bit of a plea for sort of the what next um, and where do we instill optimism. Um, I like this one. What happens when women as a collective disengage from the current patriarchal order, systems, structures and constructs? Can we create a new order? So I think that goes to the, um, the smashing, the, not just the patriarchy, but the systems. And and be interested to hear your views on how we see that happening. And a number of questions specifically um, for Fatima um, about just the what, what does have to happen when you look at the, the issues you see in the countries um, that you were speaking of. But what, where, do we, where do we draw optimism and hope? I mean, I'm not a great one for the word hope, but where do we draw, where do we, from where do we draw um, information and understanding as to what does happen next? So I guess a, a general question about this, um, the idea of what we can do, what happens next, what can an audience do? Where, where to go? Mm. Um, I think when it comes to the climate crisis, uh, there's no time to waste. And I think one of the things that's hard for everybody is that we don't actually know anything about it. The information is so hard to come by. There's so much we don't know. And, and it's always presented as a kind of distant, you know, sort of scientific and vaguely you know, incoherent argument. It's not incoherent. And I think we have to do the hard work of going out, trying to learn more um, and forming groups and learning. You know, so much of feminism or activism is about learning. Um, no one has all the answers and we, we need each other. We rely on each other to have the answers and the education and the discussions we need. And I think it's probably quite urgent that we start moving in that way. Um, you know, the issue of climate justice is very important. And, you know, another thing that I think is quite essential is I heard Greta Thunberg speak um, a couple of months ago. I'm so glad that Andrew Tate was arrested partially on the back of that <laughs> exchange. Um, you know, she's a remarkable young woman and... While she was talking, all the questions directed at her were, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Um, and she made a really great point. You know, she said, well, well, first, a lot of people also asked her if they should start school strikes. And she said, oh, I'm not here to tell you to do that. But like, yes. <laughs> but, um, but one of the great things she said is that, look, we can all recycle and we can say, I'm not going to take the plane and I'm going to take a train instead. And that's all very valuable. And that's how she lives and that's how she chooses to, to, you know, think about this on her daily life. But she said, the truth is the action required of the world urgently is not going to be yours and mine. It's corporations, it's governments, and they're not going to do it happily. They're going to do it when they're pushed. Um, they're not going to do it because you sign a petition. Um, they're going to do it, you know, Noam Chomsky um, in his last book, which was co-written, um, I'm forgetting his co-author's name, but on, on Green New Deals globally, um, suggested jailing CEOs who don't lower their company's emissions. So they're not, you know, they're, they're not going to lower emissions happily. And we've got to start moving in a really radical, thoughtful, creative, and I would say even angry. I'm ready to be angry again. I'm not that ashamed. Yes. Um, on that way. There's a number of questions. Oh, sorry, Karen. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about campaigns and and what's making them successful at the moment. And I think that, like, I was schooled in a framework called Anger, Hope, Action. Mm. You present a, an issue to the public mm. and you go, right, we've got to get angry. Mm. And then we've got to have hope that mm. something's going to change. And then we've got to take action and then that'll create utopia. Mm. 
for for me now i've i think about belief as the first step mm. that women have to be believed about the experiences of their lives about the experience of the patriarchy about the experience of colonization and then it's it's about moving from that that belief to anger because what i see happening at the moment as a stumbling block is is almost like an apathy of mm. oh well you know we always hear you know this this stuff and and then off the back of that you can't get to change because we're skipping and at the moment there's some stats if we had time we'd go into them but otherwise look up the australia talks data from 2021 and keep an eye out for the anrose data but believing women is woefully bad in this society. It's absolutely shameful. 60% of men do not believe women when they complain of sexual assault. And that is up from 18%. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking well done, boys. Like, <laughs> you know, 60% don't believe. So when you, when you stumble on believing, you can't get to, the, to, to that that phase of, of them being angry. And if you're not angry, are you going to get to that point of action and change? Probably not. So for me, I agree with Chelsea's framework of, you know, hope's out the door. Well, it's, it's to quote me, it's fuck hope. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to... <laughs> Thank you. I was trying to reduce my swearing already. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can I just say, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I copped a whole lot of crap about the fuck hope thing, um, but I stand by it. Um, you know, you can work towards social change without having hope as the centrepiece of, you know, what gets you up in the morning. And in fact, it's, it's necessary to, for me to abandon it because of the betrayal of it um, and the brutality of that betrayal and, and arriving at that. Um, but, and this is the one thing I think when we think about um, this place, we return to this place and the sovereignty in particular of Aboriginal women who stand in their motherfucking power every day independent of hope, independent of the promise of progress. And that is what a sovereignty is. It's standing still and standing in our power and knowing who we are and where we come from and operating on that basis, not on an appeal to white patronage, not on a seeking proximity to whiteness, but standing in this place and who we are. And that's what drives social change, that collectively we, we, we understand our own power um, and not think it's something that someone's going to give to us. Um, we've been here 65,000 years. Mm -hmm. The difficulty I now have is that we've gone under one minute to go until the end of this session, and I'm sure you're as, as hungry for more of this discussion as, as I am. Um, a number of you will be signing books and, and are available out the front, um, so please do um, make your way and ask some of those other questions. I guess, just to go a little bit over time, do you, is there, a, a, Chelsea, you've just, set the, you've just set the scene, I think, for, for what we really, what, what the entire conversation, it started with what is here and now and your reflections and you've brought that full circle for us. I just wonder if there are other comments that panellists would like to I, leave I, this I, audience with. And, I, yeah. I would leave one thing just to tie it into what you were talking about, the police. By the way, in this country and everywhere else in the world, anyone that gathers to make a kind of climate protest, they're hit with the high, hardest prison sentences mm going. And someone told me the other day that, the, um, was it a woman who, yes, woman who stopped Harbour Bridge, the traffic, got six years in jail? Something it's, it's, like? it's not I don't, quite I as bad, but it was now. bad. It was a jail term. Yes. It's, 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 you know, that's not, that's not accidental again, you know, in all the ways in which power seeks to stop us. Um, they're, they're, you know, when it comes to climate as much as anything else. But I, I just, I, you know, I think of Mariam Kaba, 
who said hope is a discipline. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I... I, I, that's how I look at it now because the, the betrayal is painful and it, and it hurts. But if I think of it as a discipline, then mm. um, I find it's a good guide because we need a little bit of it somewhere to get through, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to get through what we have to get through. But at the same time, I think there's plenty of place for anger and action, and belief and all the rest of it. I, I stand by, endorse everything that my fellow panelists have said and, and, and I would add to it... Um, Uh, a willingness for those of you who are privileged enough to push back, to take risk, you know, mm-hmm. take risk. Because I think that so many people in their comfort, you know, wonder, what can I do? What can I do? And I think risk your privilege mm-hmm. is a big thing that you can do. <clears throat> so many people with, with such little privilege already do, you know. Mm-hmm. So the least that you can do, because... One of my biggest frustrations with the United States, with the privileged people in the United States, is this, oh, you know, I turn up to vote once every four years and that's it. And that is the least that you can do. (laughs) You know, fuck voting and fuck the government and fuck so many other things. I'm an anarchist. The older I get, the more of an anarchist I am. So fuck borders and the state and all of this. But voting is like the least that you can do. There is so much up there. And yeah, go out there and, and risk. And um, I, um, Sam, with the permission of my panelists, after everyone claps, there is a way that I love to end <laughs> panels that Fatma will remember. Yeah. We did this in <laughs> Melbourne for 1,000 people. So after you finish this all, I would like everyone to just stay in your seats for just a few more seconds before we go out, okay? But oh, no, we'll make, no, we'll make sure that happens. I think um, I couldn't think of a, a more perfect way to, to, to round this out. And... Um, This has been a remarkable conversation. If I look at the questions you've all asked, they go to quite specific things. And if we step back and just rest in the wisdom and the advocacy that we've heard today, all of your questions have been answered, I believe, um, because of what you've just heard from these remarkable women. But I would really like you to show your great appreciation. I'd like to thank our wonderful signers who've, who've worked throughout the... Oh, thank you. Thank you, and everyone who's been watching online. Um, I think now over to Mona. Thank you, Sam. Okay, so look, this is a way that I love to end events because I I hope that it sends you out with some fervor, okay? For those of you who can stand, please stand and turn your cameras on, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're going to do this three times and get increasingly louder, okay? At the count of three, we're going to chant my declaration of faith Fuck the patriarchy. Are you ready? <laughs> All right? We're ready. One, two, three. Fuck the patriarchy! Okay, that's okay, but come on, Sydney. Come on, this is the concert hall. One, two, three. Fuck the patriarchy! That's so much better, but I want a fucking revolution, okay? One. Shouldn't they turn their cameras... On themselves. Like, yeah. so we can see yeah, the room. Yeah, film each other. Absolutely. Film yeah. each other. All right? Are you yeah. ready? At the count of three, we're going to a revolution, okay? One, two, three. Fuck the patriarchy! Thank you! Watch this talk and others from All About Women 2023 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.